So hi, Christopher, I hope you're doing well. Um, do you want to quickly introduce yourself to the listeners and you know what you do, where you're from, and what are your interests? Hell yeah, Sanjana. Now, I, I actually, I'm also glad that we can finally sit down for this. It's been, uh, it's been an effort to get together, but I know we've been collaborating on a lot of content, so this is really cool. Uh, I, I'm in Boulder, Colorado, in the United States. And then uh, I guess like a synopsis of my background is, uh, uh, I think I put this on my Twitter, um, but I wrote, uh, this will encapsulate where I'm coming from. I wrote, um, specialization is for laborers and birds. And so uh, I, I kind of have a broad set of interests really uh, sprawling, uh, like politics, art, economics, uh, and then business and high technology. I have an enterprise technology background. So I spent quite a few years like taking my own ideology on, on operations, management, and automation, and uh, tr trying to insert that into these various corporations. And then right now, I'm studying uh, political science at the University of Colorado in Boulder, hence why I'm in Boulder uh, at this moment. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I like to philosophize. Uh, I, I, uh, you know, I definitely consider myself a, a thinker, as do a lot of others. Uh, I like to write and, uh, you know, I, li I like things that are interdisciplinary, problem solving and, and so forth. That's very, very interesting. Uh, so why political theory? Why are you so interested in political theory? P politics is a politics is a fascinating discipline to me because you you still have like the the theoretical or the philosophical. You know, like there's um, so many different veins of uh, political thought. Uh, you know, all the way from like uh, various political movements uh, to like more sustainable forms of politics that inform uh, democratic or autocratic uh, governments in different ways. Uh, I grew up talking politics at the dinner table and, uh, and my father did a lot of work in, uh, in the United States, in the Bay Area in the 60s, 70s and 80s. So politics was a uh, uh, conversation that was normalized. Uh, and then even as I was pursuing like my own interest in business and tech, uh, it just kind of stuck around. So by the time I decided to go back to university later in my life, I, I wanted to get uh, a liberal arts education. I, f I figured I, you know, I have plenty of practical experience to pull from. So I, so I really wanted to focus on some of the things that could broaden my thinking. So I, I take the um, political science education I'm getting and I, I round that off with philosophy and economics. And uh, it's, re it's really helped me to see things from a more global perspective. And, and then obviously government and uh, politics have a huge impact on societies, you know, by and large. So it's just really fascinating for me to think about it. Like what, like what I'm stuck thinking about right now is like uh like uh 
repression technology. So technologies that authoritarian or autocratic regimes use to repress political dissent. And then also um, some of the various forms of political dissent that have taken place in the United States through through art, through poetry, and uh, and then political philosophy. So like, would it be fair to say that um, what you mean here is uh, with the suppressed uh, politics, is that because of this authoritative kind of influence and power, um, most of the times the lines are blurred. And so all of these things become oblivious and only upon reflection does it seem like, okay, okay, this was the thing. Mm. Uh, say more, say more on that. So like when I, when I think about repressed politics, uh, just by just by the keyword, the sound of it, it seems to me as if you know there's a lot of political thought which is authoritative, which is conservative, which is extremist, um, always there. However, it is oblivious to us. We are unconscious of it. Um, most of the times because we do not want to think of it, we ignore it. And as soon as something um, related to that particular thing comes on, it acts as a trigger thing. And then you're all of a sudden you're like, oh yeah, this is a problem. Um, and this is a huge problem. So, you know, you know, repressed uh, politics, that repression suddenly uh, comes alive and then it gives you all of these effects that you need to process through. Yeah, I could see if, if you're just in a non-academic way, we're sitting down talking about this, but I could see if you're saying like uh, like minority groups' ability to express themselves politically is encumbered in various ways, you know, depending on where you're at in the globe and how a government is uh, configured or what their interests are. So I could see like, um, you could say that what I'm exploring when I'm looking at political dissent is like, how did these political movements emerge? How did they communicate? What what mediums are they communicating on? Uh, and then at a certain point, have have they been able to achieve, uh, I guess, like uh, enough collective action to actually interact directly with the political institutions or or the societal institutions that they're frustrated with? No, no, very, very interesting. Um, so when it comes to, let's say, political theory, um, how would you make a framework which describes the very essence of what political theory is? Jeez, okay. I don't know if I've thought about it in that depth. Like, like I think a basic framework that a lot of people talk about politics within is the left and right spectrum so you know like uh hard left being like uh statelessness or what other people would know as like anarchy uh, hard right being like autocracy or what people in the west would label as uh fascism uh but but i think there's like a whole uh kind of nuance of various theories and and thinking that fit on either side of that spectrum. I, and I also think that spectrum can be really confusing. Like when you think about like nationalism or like nationalist movements, you know, pe people automatically 
take nationalism and of like, oh yeah, that, that leads to fascism, uh, which a lot of people would say uh, fascism is a uh, response to a perception that uh, uh, democracy or democratic institutions are inadequate. So it's like a, it's like a, a, a government that is seeking to absorb more power, build more bureaucracy, and take decision-making authority out of the hands of citizens. Whereas other nationalist movements that come out of minority groups around the globe, you know, those could be like uh, seen as like secessionist or or anti-state movements. So. You know, those would be nationalist movements that are on the, the left side of the spectrum uh, where they want to disassociate from the state or establish a new state within those boundaries or elsewhere. Uh, and, and, you know, bo bo both are dangerous to some degree. Uh, it's just uh, 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 who is threatened, I guess, is the big question that people ask. And I, I don't know if there's an affirmative answer. That's why I try to stay away from the label of extremism. Uh, because I think like there are, uh, there is like an ex, ex, like r radical thought, like say, say a group is, uh, is fighting for voting rights. If the established institution has already decided which group is allowed to participate in democracy, then that's a long-standing, acceptable institution for most of society, right? Uh, and so, if a minority group decides to dissent with that long-standing political institution, that could still be thought of as uh, radical or, or even extremist in, in that moment when that speech is starting to shape up or take place. You know, again, like even if you think of like a, a leftist movement and you apply that to abolition. Well, yeah, certainly there are certain institutions that uh, people will seek to abolish, you know, like slavery, for example, is a, a perfectly legitimate institution to seek to abolish today. You know, maybe 150 or 200 years ago, uh, that, that was considered extreme thinking. Like, uh, you know, Frederick Douglass, a political philosopher in the United States was a slave and came to actually be able to interact with the political institutions to the point where he was sitting down in the White House with Abraham Lincoln and a lot of his political dissent, his theory, his writings are well documented. Uh, but, you know, that, that was probably extreme. Uh, for, for white America to imagine that uh, a former uh, Negro act, like, it'd be extreme to think that we would ever uphold the institution of slavery, you know? No, those are something, those are some really great philosophical, political philosophical reflections of her because I barely ever get to interact with people who are in this political theory circle. Um, so you also, of course, uh, write about a lot of things associated to this. Um, and how do you explore writing about political 
subjects because there has to be a particular way one has to uh, you know make a, make an editorial so it's a uh, open an editorial like it has to have a a, a theme line in the sense like it has to be making a very subjective point yet also very clear or supporting one side like maybe the left so uh, you know what comes around when people are trying to you know make the best out of writing within the political scenario yeah actually i think my writing differs quite a bit because it's uh it's not, I'm not arguing for a side as much as I'm observing sides and the kind of dynamics that shape up, whether it's the dynamics between the dissenters and the actual political institution. Like on my Substack, the last uh, writing that I put out, it's called Political Poetry, a medium for truth or satire. So, so even though I'm exploring like various forms of uh, uh, political poetry or, or art and poetry. Uh, it's, it's not that I'm supporting a side as much as I'm trying to highlight um, like some of the uh, approaches, I guess you could say, that people take to, um, to disagreeing with uh, you know, a structure in society or within a culture or a group or even a structure that's imposed by a government. Uh, a lot of people struggle to place my politics because of this, um, you know, because like I, I like to debate across the spectrum. And then I, I do think like certain types of politics have been, uh, have brought quite a bit of innovation into, uh, into the world like like again like if somebody is uh conservative but they want to protect some form of human rights how do you do that and maintain conservative views across the board but like it seems like uh to advance society to some degree conservatives have a responsibility to uh to nuance or maybe roll back some of their views otherwise like you know uh we're limiting the autonomy of uh women or certain ethnic groups or people that have a certain national identity in different parts of the world um so, so I, I i have my own politics but uh i prefer to look at politics for for what it is like the, 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 the heuristics, the structure of government. Uh, and, and then, you know, maybe I'll throw my opinions down, but like, to me, I would be taking away from the beautiful art and poetry in this post I put on Substack, if I like anchored it in my own political beliefs because I, I actually think like even as somebody that would probably fit more onto the conservative like maybe center right spectrum of politics uh i actually think like uh leftist politic has been like true leftist politic has been extremely necessary to balance out 
uh, you know, ultra conservative or conservative viewpoints. Because what what is the conservative seeking to do? In reality, they're seeking to maintain uh, a certain level of predictability in society. So I think people forget that when you install new ideas into large bodies of people uh, too quickly, that they become unpredictable. So it seems like the conservative across the globe more broadly is uh, concerned with this kind of uh, maintenance of existing institutional uh, authority. Uh, but again, the maintenance of existing institutions it puts downward pressure on on minority groups. So it's like it's like what government or uh, political structure can alleviate this tension. In the West, it's well, how do we include more people in certain autocratic regimes? Maybe there's a fear that including more people is a threat to the existence of the state or to its stability. So it's like, like you know, political theories um, look at who should be included and who shouldn't differently. And I, I love looking at how that tra translates into economics, and then also just uh, just decision making in general in terms of how resources get allocated. No, this is very interesting. It makes me think about this one thing um, that I usually think about, which is we we have all of these systems. We have capitalism, communism, et cetera, et cetera. And we've been using these political systems or whatever for, for a good amount of time. Um, so why even why that we are aware of let's say the Marxist criticism of uh, uh, capitalism that capitalism has its own pros and cons and also we know with communism the same it's the same case why is it that today no person is making a new framework a new political ideology that might be able to take the good aspects of both communism and, and let's say capitalism together and form some kind of a utopic uh, ideology that might just work within our civilization. I don't know why that's not happening. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly don't have the answer to this question. So, some would argue that China has taken the best parts of the market economy uh, so, you know, the market-based approach, the capitalist approach, and uh, combine that with uh, central planning or, uh, 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 you know, various uh, concentrations of uh, a state-run industry or state-run state economy. And, uh, you know, the, there's an argument there. Um, some would argue that the United States has a government that allows a broader set of people to participate in the political institution in a way that still doesn't exist anywhere else on the planet, which would fit under the vein of, um, I guess, what is called American exceptionalism. It's fascinating, though, if you talk about American exceptionalism, which, which again, it's not like a, a belief that I like 
hold or espouse, but I do think it is definitely a way to look at uh, the ascendance of the United States through the lens of exceptionalism. Uh, uh, well, I, I don't think it's important to try to uphold all of these exceptionalist institutions in this current day because we need to include more people. Uh, you know, there's still a legitimate argument that um, American exceptionalism has propelled more people and contributed to more growth around the globe than any other political system in the world. Like U.S. hegemony is a real thing, but but you know obviously like we're in this era now where it's like, is that the right thing? And you know there are different dynamics or discussions and political economy around like development and sustainability of other nations and arguments around like the role of these large intergovernmental uh, organizations and uh, that their their impact on um, how they affect resource allocation or competition you know that there's lots of arguments there uh, but I, I don't think I'm equipped to answer that question I think there are politics at work right now and we can see what what states or or nations are you know, thriving off of the, those politics, and uh, and then there are systems that aren't working, and and we can see what those are. Uh, but but do we know why? You know, people will try to make a biological argument. Well, that's not a good argument. So maybe people will try to argue geography. Hmm. Maybe there's something there. Uh, you know, some people might argue. Uh, 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 government's ability to allocate resources efficiently or to develop industry or you know you, you can make arguments about like what are the skills and and capabilities of the people i mean you know there's i'm sure there's uh lots of arguments uh floating around about like what what is the ideal state and that's what's so exciting about political philosophy or you know theory is that you can either piece it together and kind of be thinking about your own ideal state, or you can hear the ideal states that have uh, 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 been described by philosophers that were actually implemented into the body of politic or, or government in different areas around the world. No, genuinely very interesting. Um, specifically, I think if you know political theory and political philosophy a lot, um, you can easily navigate through geopolitics uh, and the real world happenings and be able to analyze them from, you know, let's say a 180 degree angle. Um, and so, you know, when it comes to, let's say, China, as you mentioned before, um, I was thinking about how, um, you know, the lab leak hypothesis happened. And that hypothesis was always there, literally. I think I remember it was April of 2020 when everyone was slightly talking about the hypothesis, yet everyone was like, no, it can be. Um, and there was still like, if you were to talk about it, you're conspiracy theorist, blah, blah, blah. And then two years after, um, people are like, oh, you know what, this might just be the case, you know, we, you see so many articles, uh, literally now, just talking about lab leak hypothesis and how it's probably very true. So we saw like a shift of 
um, of, of, of people's opinions regarding uh, certain subjects which are not very uh, doesn't make and doesn't make much more sense to people in a normal way. So you know we we saw we saw a shift in people's opinion of uh, yeah no it's 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 not a virus to yes it could be possibly be the case. So it's it's important to see the the way uh, uh, opinion editorials uh, take place within all of these different newspapers, especially with the topics that we're talking about. Um, so what what do you think about the current mainstream media or even some obscure obscure media's people uh, structures that you like that that you know they're doing any kind of amazing editorial framework or something like that. Yeah, it's super interesting. So I, I'm not skilled to think about uh, like the lab leak theory or hypothesis. It's just not interesting to me because I don't have the skills to process that. Even though I did host a discussion with a group of doctors, uh, fellows at various think tanks in Washington, DC, uh, uh, probably some journalist people on epidemiology like uh, a year ago exploring the hypothesis and then just trying to talk through some of the frameworks, pulling on data from entities like Morning Consult and then looking at the different ways that media institutions in the US were reporting on it. Uh, but it's not something that I spend any time thinking about or building arguments for. Uh, for in terms of media, I don't look to the media as a source of credible information. So, so for me, it's better to call the primary sources, like to actually interact with the institution or uh, the body that's making decisions or people that are working on the front lines. I think that's the best way for me to get information. And then I look at the media as an institution that, uh, you know, has certain actors that interact with it and uh, and then it's a combination of the media's own self-interest as an entity and, uh, and then the actor's ability to signal or express their interest across you know, that, that media platform. One thing that uh, surprises me as I get deeper into like uh, repression technology and, and, and authoritarian, authoritarianism in the digital age is that, you know, there's lots of different ways that media kind of controls information flow or has influence over public discourse. But I do think Western media is more gated uh, or more controlled than is typically discussed. I, I think like if we're doing a comparative analysis on media, we could probably make comparisons uh, from like certain state-run media enterprises versus like uh, private industry media enterprises. And we might find that they do more things that are similar, it's just the way that actors interact with them, uh, uh, it, you know, varies. You know, like, like the government cannot push uh, uh, full control of messaging down through American media institutions. But, but it most certainly can influence them indirectly uh, or, or it can spend money running ads uh, so it can pay to influence. Whereas like in Russia, 
the government has full authority to uh, push through whatever level of mis or disinformation. Uh, and, then, and then also any type of pro-state rhetoric uh, or support for uh, Putin or, you know, the government. Whereas like in Western media, you know, there, there, it seems to be there is still like a, a principle of uh, truth seeking. Even if the, the way that that plays out practically is, is imperfect, there's, a, you know, there's still a lot more accountability uh, in Western media outlets, in my opinion, than uh, you know where media is state-run or uh, or, or uh, under some type of uh, autocratic or authoritarian control. We're gonna get geopolitical now. Uh, <laughs> talk about Russia and Ukraine for a second. Uh, sure. But uh, only the hilarity of Russia Ukraine situation, because of course it's pretty obvious that. Putin, un, you know, underestimated every single thing about this entire situation. Like U Ukraine, even though they got hit pretty badly, they're still fighting. There's so many sanctions on Russia. It's crazy. Um, and so when you have a political environment like that, where your economy is collapsing and everything like that is happening, uh, why would you risk that i mean why would you do that when you're pretty pretty much aware it's common sense thinking that even if nato you know gets all of the borders uh and there are troops nato troops today in this liberal world where we care too much about humanitarian crisis why would uh these nato troops attack russia you know i think i think there's some sort of a world war ii um based thinking based bias that has kind of like always stayed within these powerful people's mind so of course person was like okay now us is like right right in front of us we need to invade a country it's it's going back to that simple lust for power lust, lust for territorial expansion and whatnot and, and it's crazy to see that psychological effect happening. Um, so I think, yeah, largely the reason why uh, Russia was uh, invading Ukraine was because of those NATO troops. Um, so, so what are your opinions on this uh, geopolitical matter? Yeah, actually, I, I've been um, staying out of this conversation uh, on Ukraine and Russia. Uh, because I think it's really hard to look at war in real time. I think a lot of people are looking at it like it's a athletic competition, like like they're covering uh, like a soccer game or something. And uh, I, I think there's a lot of decisions that governments make when they interact with each other uh, that that don't flow through the media or uh, aren't public information. That's not conspiracy theory, it's reality. Like not, not all interests are on the surface, right? Especially, um, especially in a place like uh, Russia where information doesn't flow freely. You know, information doesn't flow freely in China. So they have a lot of control over information. So, and then, you know, all these governments are making decisions off of limited information, period. There, there is a 
the scarcity of information that is available to the heads of state and the decision makers in these different countries. So, so I can't imagine that um, citizens or uh, spec spectators have even close to the information that the governments have and the governments still have limited information. Uh, and then also, uh, you know, it's hard to tell where, uh, uh, when the media is framing uh, an actor that is speaking about the war, whether it's uh, from the government or uh, a journalist or some kind of individual, I can't tell where their interests are at. It, there's too much obfuscating reality right now. Um, so I, I've stayed out of the, uh, I've stayed out of uh, putting forth like opinions on the war that's been going on for 31 days. I, I grew up in Colorado Springs. So on my birthday in 2001, October 7th, uh, we have five military bases, you know, 30% military employment. Uh, I was turning 11, I believe. And that was the day that we launched the war in uh, Afghanistan. When I, when I was uh, two years later in Colorado Springs, uh, I remember we launched uh, the war in Iraq. I watched the United States topple the Iraqi government on television. You know, so I grew up in an ultra conservative uh, military town, super powerful military town, still powerful today. When you think about US military contractors, you know, you have Washington, DC, you have tailwinds in Virginia and Maryland, but then you have Colorado Springs. Okay, so it's, it's one of the players you have to. Air Force Academy there, and uh, a lot of very powerful uh, military institutions. So, so I grew up in a pro-war town that that makes a lot of money when war is happening, and a lot of people were celebrating the uh, Afghanistan war just after 9/11, like not even a month, and then the Iraq war uh, again, like it was a contest, right? Not not like it wasn't. Uh, you know, creating this ridiculous suicide rate on these bases, or that it wasn't causing the soldiers to come home and start fights in the bar and justify those fights because they fought for our country, but they're only 21 and they've already killed multiple people. They don't even know why they've killed them. So I, uh, I grew up in a community that is truly built off of war. The high, the high school I went to is named after a civil war general okay william j palmer he founded the town of colorado springs colorado so my my community that i spent probably from age 10 to about 22 inside of is built off of war so for me it's very challenging to look, look at these wars in an objective way or to even analyze them uh, when I was younger, like I was taught that, you know, this is pro-war, let's defend democracy. I didn't realize all of the things that were happening in the background or the different kinds of uh, institutions that were ignored or the, the various ways that um, U.S. intervention takes place. Now, look, I, uh, I am a proud American citizen, uh, but, but growing up in, uh, in one of the war machines, you know, all, all my friends' parents were contractors, special forces, uh, active duty, retired, 
you know, th these are still like uh, people I associate with, uh, you know, building war simulators, driving McLarens around town. This is like real stuff that um, I grew up around. So, so I, I had to kind of start to distance myself from that ideology and way of thinking because it gave me a, a lack of nuanced understanding of politics outside of a democracy. Gave me a lack of nuanced understanding of like US politics uh, and foreign affairs. Uh, and, and then it, uh, it, it, it made me miss out on a whole bunch of incredible uh, culture uh, and uh, uh, political thought around the globe. So it's really hard for me to comment on or even consider Ukraine and Russia, because who knows what's going on? Uh, you know, even uh, what, 19 years after unseating Saddam Hussein, how much do we still not know? Like, what were we doing in Afghanistan? You know, like, these are still open-ended questions 20, 22 years later. So I, I've just avoided speaking on uh, an engagement that's taking place between two countries that's obviously having a, a big impact on the world. It's creating a lot of uncertainty in various ways, but but it's been uh, it's been a month and some days, and uh, even after multiple decades, like you know, wh wh who who knows what is going on? What what I do know is that uh, states have interests, and states have legitimate frameworks and models for justifying war like rational frameworks for justifying war. And uh, uh, whether that's a state that wants to attack another state, and then whether that's a state that decides it wants to defend itself from, from that state that's attacking it. Like there are frameworks for decision-making there. So whatever um, these, whatever Russia and Ukraine are going through right now, they're not the first states to fight wars. Uh, you know, and we have other wars happening in different parts of the globe currently, and we have, you know, instability in places like uh, Sudan, or like, you know, various iterations of instability in Egypt, or Ethiopia, like the fact that we're talking about Russia and Ukraine 24-7 to me is really interesting because it, it says that, like, back to, uh, you know, bias in media, uh, this is not like the only war that's happened uh, recently, and it's certainly not the only war that's going on right now. So I, so I do think that uh, I think people are like fascinated with war. And then maybe pe maybe there's a, a lot more people that haven't experienced the cost of war, whether that's directly or indirectly. Uh, so, and then there's also people that, you know, they study war or they're practitioners of war. And so for them, it's probably interesting to uh, flex their war muscles, but, but I don't study war. Uh, so like, even when I think about the thesis that I'm putting together now, I may study like um, uh, Middle Eastern politics. And, I'm, and I may look at how the various uh, political institutions uh, relate to like uh, or conflict with religious thinking and how that has uh, fueled certain types of uh, terrorism, you know, or I might 
tried to explore the idea of nationalism uh, in more depth, or I, I might look at various governments, various authoritarian regimes and their technological capabilities related to uh, digital repression. But, but war is war is something that like, it's too serious. And uh, I actually struggle to, uh, when I'm like taking classes on international relations or uh, reading some of the frameworks for war, like, you know, a lot of the frameworks say that it's not a war until a thousand people are dead. You know, I'm like, oh, geez. I, I struggle to read uh, about war and not internalize it. Because uh, I do think that uh, war is like des the desperation of humanity at its most physical. But like it's one thing to it's one thing to to starve or to have disease everywhere or to have an economy that's not working or to not be able to protect your family. And then it's another thing when people are marching in with guns and missiles and bombs. And, uh, and looking at the other people on the other side of them as an entity, not even a human being, but the member of a nation or a state, you know? So, so it's really hard for me to, to try to put out my views on uh, Russia and Ukraine. I mean, you know, my town where I grew up, there's a mountain called Cheyenne Mountain there's a military facility in there that a lot of people know about called NORAD. And, and NORAD um, is, is like 10 stories inside of the mountain. It's a modern marvel. You can Google it. There's a lot of public information on it. We used to golf at the bottom of that mountain. There's an incredible golf course there at, uh, at this really amazing property. Uh, but, you know, th that mountain is where the United States kind of took control of global airspace on 9-11. So that that's the significance of the town that I grew up in. So, so it's just just too. Eh. There's so many other things that are happening, and then also there are, are other active conflicts. You know, uh, you know, people want to use the Russia-Ukraine conflict to make arguments about like hegemonic theory, you know, or like authoritarian stability theory, or if they want to talk about like. Chinese world hegemony, or if they want to talk about the, the collapse of uh, the U.S. dollar, you know, I still think a lot of that stuff's bullshit, but, but I know that's like the, the kind of political porn version of war discussions that are happening right now. No, that's that's very fascinating. You know what, like, I, I keep on thinking about this. I think I'm deeply disappointed with the human condition at the moment. Uh, and I think democracy is in crisis. Um, and the reason why I say democracy is in crisis, I, I just as a system is because I see a lot of polarization happening. So even if let's say a country has a multi-party system, right? There's two very popular um, parties very, very quote-unquote powerful, complete opposites of each other. Um, and that's all you get in every election because there's more consensus within these two parties. So, you know, what exactly are true 
elections? How, how exactly can we build a better and much functional democratic um, organization? So, so that that's that's a puzzling question, um, and I and I keep on wondering whether even though we have a good a good amount of uh, democracies which are doing well, um, you know, again, how democratic are they when the lines between democracy itself is blurred? Yeah, and again, I'm coming to this as a, a student and somebody that uh, has used I've used my voice most of my life so i'm very vocal uh so I, so i'm not saying that i have answers but i think that polarization is a talking point that the media likes to strike up uh and maybe like studies around polarization are just uh led by funding from pr firms or led by funding from media institutions uh or, or maybe even political actors so i don't even know why polarization in, invades the discourse so frequently because I, I don't think that uh, two in a two-party system the parties can't be that far away from each other uh, otherwise the state would collapse so they're obviously agreeing on most of the principled things even if the that's just the architecture of how they interact you know dissent uh, and friction gridlock those seem like products of democracy. So I feel like democracy it, it is supposed to hold tension between differing views, hence why authoritarians use physical and technological means of repression to control the narrative in their favor. Whereas inside of a democracy, you can have this uh, uh, political dissent or these uh, uh, contradictory or uh, differing views. So do I think democracy is in crisis? Again, I think that there are certain academics that don't have anything else to talk about. And they've been writing about the crisis of democracy for since the Cold War. Like, I don't think the crisis of democracy is a new discussion, uh, e even though democratic institutions, uh, you know, th there's a lot of arguments around stability, peace, um, a, a disincentive to go to war with other uh, democracies, like, 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 there's a lot of great pro-democracy arguments. Uh, so, I don't know if democracy is uh, at threat any more than it's ever been, and 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 still, it, it still seems like the most successful framework for. Uh, decentralizing decision-making or like distributing it more broadly than, you know, uh, other types of politics or government. No, you, you're definitely very knowledgeable about political theory because it's as if I'm going back to my class of politics and like just going over the notes again. It's very interesting. Um, uh, well, so, um, any other topic that you want to discuss when it comes to politics before we end the podcast? Anyone which is significant these days as well? Yeah, no, I don't know. I think um, I think I love politics, and uh, I know that some of my uh, kind of answers or thoughts on these things are like way far away from 
how it's being uh, discussed. Uh, but it, it's just nice to be able to uh, express some of my views here. And again, I'm I'm coming at this um, still as uh, from the perspective of a student of politics, which I've been many years before I even uh, stepped into academia. Uh, but no, it's, it's really cool. I, I love your questions, and you know, it's fascinating to hear your thinking on on these uh, these ideas as well. It's always likewise. Um, well, thank you for coming on to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you, Sanjana.